Welcome everybody to Spirituality Adventures. This is a non-judgmental place to explore spirituality, and we're so glad you're here. This is a viewer and listener supported podcast, so we greatly appreciate your support. If you're watching on YouTube, be sure and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Be sure and like, share, and subscribe to any of the social media content platforms that you're using. And then if you go to our website, spiritualityadventures.com, you can make a one-time donation or with a monthly subscription, you'll gain access to our bonus content. We greatly appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in. Well, welcome everybody to Spirituality Adventures. We are so excited to have Jimmy Bratcher here with us today. Jimmy, thank you for joining us on Spirituality Adventures. Thanks for having me. I I was trying to think back when we first met. Uh, It's been a long while ago um, and a lot of common friends along the way. Right. It's over a decade ago for sure. I would think so, yeah. Maybe even maybe even 20 years ago. I'm not sure. It could have been, but we really didn't have any kind of one-on-one interface we did lunch uh probably five years ago or okay. more all right um yeah and that was the first time that we actually sat down and had a conversation okay but. all right all right well good to have you here i you know when when we had that conversation five years ago i think you brought up this story with uh jessica your daughter right which i want to get to uh, in a, a little, yeah, and a little, little later. Okay, but I, I kind of want to give that as a teaser to people to hang on because the story that Jimmy has to tell about his daughter Jessica is truly inspiring. Um, touch. I, I was reading it this morning and was cr- I cried several times. Yeah. It just really touched me. So, but yeah. So let's start with you know, like where did you grow up? And okay, yeah, I think you're. You're a Kansas City kid, aren't uh, you? I grew up in Liberty. Liberty, yeah, 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 Clay County, okay, Missouri, and uh, you know that's where I uh, did all of my uh, all of my or a lot of my rebellious activities. So I grew up in a household with two older sisters, and my mother had subscribed to the pop culture of the day of how to raise kids, which was don't discipline them. So I grew up completely undisciplined and uh, and really spent my uh, teenage years completely out of control um, using and abusing every substance I could find and and ended up just really crying out for somebody to just say no. And nobody ever said no. (laughs) So I, you know, I ended up, um, you know. LSD was my drug of choice and uh, and did that. I met my wife, Sherry, at a Black Sabbath concert at Memorial Hall in Kansas City, Kansas. It was her first American tour. Wow. And uh, and I tell people that. Is that um, 70? I think it was 71 or something, 72. Yeah. And uh, I tell people that we were both tripping, and I couldn't tell if she was that beautiful or if I was hallucinating. (laughs) And... uh, but shortly after that, she got pregnant, and uh, six months into her pregnancy, we got married. And uh, we call that time in our lives uh, the marriage made in hell, because that's all there was around our house. We were very, um, you know, of course, with my background, I was very selfish, and we were both very immature. And and then add in substance uh, on top of that, it created a big mess. And three years into the marriage, uh, we got in a fight one night that I lost. And uh, three days later, after having reconstructive surgery on my face, uh, <laughs> my grandmother came to visit me. And I'm all black and blue and bruised because I had to have my nose reconstructed. And and uh, she walks in and looks at me and says, baby, I will give you the money if you just get a divorce. And so, you know, your marriage is really messed up if granny will pay for the divorce. That's crazy. And so we got a divorce, went through the whole process and um, child support, the whole deal. And about nine months after the divorce was final, we started seeing each other again. And of course, we couldn't tell my grandmother because she'd want a refund. But but we uh, we decided in our insanity to get a marriage license 
And so we got a marriage license, and uh, Sherry had been attending a church in uh, outside of Hamilton, Missouri, Caldwell County. Do you see this bug? Yeah, flying he, through here. We got to He's not uh, mark the edit mark. He's not point. doing anything. We've bad. never had a bug down here. You want me to smash? <laughs> yeah, please. That'll drive me crazy. Perfect. He's dead now. And I'm like, mark that edit point there. I'm like Matt. completely germified. But you are want, we good to go? Yeah, we're good. Okay. <laughs> but um, that would just drive me nuts seeing that. <laughs> We've never had a bug down here. So uh, nine months after the divorce was final, we got a marriage license. And uh, Sherry had started loosely attending a, a little church outside of Hamilton, Missouri. And Hamilton, Missouri is in Caldwell County, which is the smallest populated county in the state of Missouri. So there's only 5,000 people in the county. And the name of the church, you can't make this stuff up, was God's Sheep Shed, where all the big sheep and the little lambs get fed. That was their marketing tagline. And uh, we stumbled in there on a Sunday night unannounced with a marriage license. And I went up to the pastor and said, we want to get married tonight. And uh, at first he, he looked at me and he said, well, she's trying to serve the Lord and you're an alcoholic drug addict and I won't join that mess together. That was a quote. <laughs> wow. And so, you know, I'm like, you know, okay. Did he know you? Well, I had met him <laughs> once. Or did know. he just discern this? Well, no, I, I had met him once. And so we went and sat down and waited for church to start. And right before church started, he came up and he said, I'll tell you what. He says, I will marry you tonight, but you're going to believe on Jesus. And... uh he said, are you ready for that? And my faith response was, hey, man, I'm here. <laughs> and I guess God interpreted that as yes. So after church, they had a little makeshift wedding ceremony. And, um, you know, we got down on our knees and I invited Jesus to come into my life and believed by faith in him and uh, got up from there a different individual a completely different individual. All of my desires for uh, the destructive behavior that I had were gone. Hmm. And uh, and so we started our relationship that was, uh, uh, you know, our second wedding ceremony was December 19th, 1976. So hmm. almost 45 years ago. Wow. And so we've been going uh, since then. Wow. Ten That's months amazing. later, our daughter Amanda was born. And just uh, Jason, your Jason, first yeah. son, yeah. Amanda. Right. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. And very, so, very cool. So we, we stayed there for uh, 16 years. We moved out there and I had an office in downtown Kansas City. So I was driving back and forth. And uh, and then we left there and uh, in 1993 and started basing our ministry out of uh, St. Joseph, Missouri, out of a church there. And we're there on staff for uh, almost six years and then resigned in 2000, in March of 2000. And we started what is now what we currently do, uh, which is we call preaching the gospel and playing the blues. So it's great. You know, um, so talk about your musical background and how, like, when did you start playing and like, well, how did you get into the music scene? My dad played uh guitar he was a kind of a bluegrass country kind of guy and uh one weekend when i was about 12 he borrowed an electric guitar and amplifier and from a guy at work and brought it home it was summertime i'm 12 years old it's the weekend and i didn't leave the house and uh so he thought well there's maybe something here we didn't have any money but we had a car an extra car uh, a 1958 DeSoto two-door Hemi, which is like worth a you know bunch of money right now. And he ran an ad in the Kansas City paper that said, we'll trade 1958 DeSoto for electric guitar and amplifier. And we got one call and we went and picked it up. Hmm. And uh, I still have the, that guitar and amplifier uh, to this day. It's been through many transitions, but that got me started. And of course, that was uh, the music was fueled to my 
uh, behavioral issues. And then when I came to faith, one of the first things my pastor told me was, you got to quit playing that devil music. And so for 20 years, I played Southern gospel and uh, choruses and kind of folky kind of thing, but I didn't really do what I do. Okay. And uh, of course he was wrong. You know, there's only two types of music, uh, good and bad. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so, I, but I've, I felt like, you know, for me, I felt like it was more important for me to follow Jesus than it was to play music. It was more important for me to raise my kids and to be present than to, you know, pursue my aspirations of, mm -hmm. you know, being a full-time musician. Yeah. So, so I laid that aside. And uh, what kind of music were you playing before? I was uh, playing kind of a blues, southern rock kind of thing. Like before you came to Jesus right. kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. Like yeah. who were your favorites? Uh, you know, I was uh, playing. You know, I was always a Hendrix fan, mm -hmm. uh, but I had this country thing also. So I was playing electric guitar and pedal steel. And so, you know, we'd do stuff like some Marshall Tucker or some Charlie Daniels or stuff like that that kind of integrated into that kind of environment. Okay. Oh, so, yeah. Never successful because my substance abuse always blew all that up. Yeah. You know, it was more important. The party was more important than the, than the performance. Yeah. So... So when did you think? When did you think about doing blues and the gospel stuff? Like, <laughs> where did that? Well, in the in the late nineties, when we went to St. Joe to the church that we were on staff for there, they didn't have need of my music because they already had very capable music people. Mm -hmm. So I was involved in pastoral care, and uh, I was the entrepreneur in that church. So anytime we we're pioneering something. So, you know, if we're going to do media ministry, we're going to do small groups, we're going to do, you know, personal ministry, counseling, I would go to that area, develop it, raise it up, hire staff, and then pass it off. Mm -hmm. And so after I, when we left there and started traveling, and it was mainly I was traveling and preaching, but I discovered that I had an opportunity to record my first album in 2001. And so I started. Which album was that? Honey and Rock. Okay, because I went on iTunes, yeah, and I don't think that album's on iTunes. Well, because I found like the Red album was right. like two thousand five. Yeah. There was one that you. There was two did. before that. There was okay. actually three before that. Okay, but and I made the mistake of I have some albums that are as the Rev Jimmy Bratcher, and some that are as Jimmy Bratcher. Ah, so you have to. Oh, the, so there's two there's, artists on yeah, there. Yeah, okay. unfortunately. That's, and there's no way to combine them. So okay. I'm stuck with this. Uh, two identities. Right, yeah. two identities on, online. Yeah, yeah, okay. So I started writing, and that just kind of normally came out of my heart. And the producer I was working with at the time had that background. And okay. so that was kind of the encouragement. But it was all, all of that was just a process of a journey. You know, so it was bit by bit. So I met this producer, he invited me to his studio. I started writing the blues stuff, just kind of. Was this a producer in town? Here? No, it was a guy named Larry Howard. And Larry was a, a Southern rock guy in Macon, Georgia. It was, you know, in a band called Grinder Switch, which they were like the pseudo opening act for the Allman Brothers. Oh, and sweet. So, yeah. you know, so anyway, I went there and that just started coming out of me. And I was doing it totally for my own pleasure. I didn't have any kind of higher intent or purpose or vision yeah. for it at that time. And then I had always been involved in some form of prison ministry. And so I start. I had an opportunity to join an organization called Operation Starting Line, which was a consortium of ministries that was managed by uh, Chuck Colson at Prison Fellowship. But Billy Graham was involved and Promise Keepers and Navigators, American Bible, a whole bunch of these mm -hmm. people pulled their resources together. And I needed um, backing tracks to be able to do that. So I went and recorded six songs and and those became the backing tracks that I used for the performances that we did in prison. 
And that just kind of started developing. And then in 2002, I did my second album, 2003, called Something Better. And I, I, had, I had local guys here playing with me by that time. And uh, one of the guys was a J bass player named Jeff Wallenberg. And Jeff was uh, laying in bed, 44 years old, reading his Bible, uh, found a passage of scripture that spoke to him from Psalms, Psalms 130, where it says, if you should count iniquities, O God, who could stand? But there's forgiveness with you that you might be reverenced. And he grabbed a highlighter, highlighted it, had a massive heart attack and died. Oh, wow. Uh, and so huh. at his funeral, uh, which he had, you know, him and his wife had five kids combined and didn't have any kind of plans at 44 for funerals. Some of the, some of the local musicians got together and uh, to do a benefit for him. And they invited me to come and play. And at that time, I was still very pastoral. Uh, and I had actually preached at our home church at that time. And uh, so I was suit and tie short you know short hair very professional oh, really? oh yeah i've never seen you with short hair yeah no. yeah i was very uh very uh jimmy swaggerdish and uh and so but they did this benefit on sunday afternoon at the blue moon lounge in blue springs missouri and uh, i left from preaching full preaching regalia grabbed my stuff and drove there and walked in and they wanted me to come up and play and so i said great i'll sit in with you guys and they're like no, we want to do one of the songs that Jeff did with you. And so I have a song that I've written called Love Running After Me, which is a prodigal song. Mm -hmm. You know, all my life I've been running from things I couldn't see when all the time I didn't know it was love running after, after me. me. Oh, good. And uh, it's a slow blues song. And at the end of it, I'm screaming, Jesus, Jesus, will you take me just as I am? And uh, I had no idea what the reception would be in a smoke-filled bar at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And, uh, and the, one of the other guitar players came up to me afterwards and just threw his arms over my shoulder and drew me in and whispered in my ear and said, Rev, you can, you can save me. Mm. And I knew what he meant, right, you know. Right. And so we invited him over, and uh, the next day, him and his girlfriend, and they both uh, made a profession of their faith in Jesus through that experience. But that opened my eyes to see, hey, wait a minute, maybe I can do this outside of the church. And then, I love that. And then the That's next, the next kind of step in the journey was I was on a motorcycle trip with a friend of mine, and he had this idea. You would think it had been my idea, it was his idea. He goes, I want to go to Mississippi and visit all the historic blues sites. Because there's only about three counties in Mississippi where all this music originated, Cahoma County being the center in Clarksdale. And so we got to Memphis and spent the night and then got on our bikes and started south. And we pulled into to, um, Clarksdale and didn't really have a plan. And so we stopped at this stoplight. And we're talking, red light. And he goes, well, I got this book in my saddlebag. Let's pull over here and stop. And to my left, I look over, and here's a monument that marks this intersection is a, called the Crossroads, which if you've seen the movie, Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou? They talk about Tommy Johnson and right. selling his soul to the devil mm -hmm. and then Robert Johnson mm -hmm. doing the same thing. And so we're sitting there at the crossroads, and this old gnarly guy in this pickup truck pulls up with rebel flag in a back window, gun rack, you know, you know, full beard, ponytail. And he pulls up to me, and he looks out, and he snarls at me and goes, are you boys here to look at my town? And we're like, yeah. And so we're talking, and my friend goes, where can we get barbecue? And he goes, well right there at Abe's at the crossroads, which is a whole nother story of that place. So, but uh, it's worth, it's worth investigating what looking up Abe's, Abe's right. barbecue at Clarksdale. All right. And so he takes us over there and we start talking and he goes, so what do you boys do? You know, I said, well, this guy's a pastor, but I'm a, you know, blues guitar player. And he goes, and an, an evangelist. And he goes, well, there's people around here into the blues. He goes, do you know Morgan Freeman? 
And I, well, no, but I know who he is. And he goes, well, he's got a place downtown. He goes, come on, let's go downtown. I'll introduce you to him. And so we go down, and Morgan has a place there in Clarksdale. Like the actor, Morgan. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. He has a place in Clarksdale called Ground Zero Blues Club. I'll be darned. And so we go in, and he's not there, but we meet his business partners, attorney, the club manager, and all these things. And and so this guy that we met at the Crossroads dock, he's like our – like the unofficial mayor or something at Clarksdale. So he takes us to all these places. So we we leave and I get home, I send him a card, you know, thanking him for it. And about about three months later, I get an email from him that says, I need your phone number. And so he uh, calls me up and he says, well, I've been appointed the chairman of the first ever blues festival to be held at the crossroads. And I want you to be the first band that we book. Wow. And so the, you know, Clarksdale Press Register does a big article on me. They conclude the article by saying, quote, if the Reverend Jimmy Bratcher would have been at the crossroads, Robert Johnson probably wouldn't have sold his soul to the devil. <laughs> <laughs> what an honor, though. Yeah, but we're yeah. getting ready to play the festival. And I called Doc and I, and I saw that some other people were playing at Morgan Freeman's. And so I said, well, we want to do this, but, you know, the only time we can do it is like Saturday afternoon. And uh, he says, well, they're not open, but let me talk. Let me ask Morgan. So he comes back to me and says, well, Morgan says, if you want to play, we'll open the club up Saturday afternoon at two o'clock. And so we go there. And I know this is a long story, but you can edit it out if you want to. But we go there and I'm expecting two people. It's completely full, bikers drinking like there's no tomorrow. And it's the first time I've ever done like a full set in a non-church venue. And and so I get to the same prodigal song. I'm getting ready to scream, Jesus, Jesus, will you take me as I am? I have no idea what's going to happen. And I get to that part and just start screaming it out. And all of a sudden I hear chairs moving. And everybody in the place stands up and gives a standing ovation because I screamed the name of Jesus <laughs> in this club. Wow. And it was a real discovery for me to be able to see that people actually wanted to hear the gospel. People actually wanted to experience something like that. Mm. And so that started us then on a journey that's now been going on for 21 years. Interesting. That's wonderful. Beautiful story. I like that. Well, cool. Well, a um, couple of things. The Red Album, uh, you had a song on there called Bad Religion, mm -hmm. and I, I enjoyed that one. What, right. Where did that uh, come from? Well, it came out of my own experience. I was, I was betting it did. <laughs> <laughs> because I spent... I was for years a very um, harsh, very judgmental, and a very mean preacher. Oh wow! And so I wanted to, uh, I wanted to write about that experience in a way that would um, identify that as a problem and offer a solution. And so I called my my good friend, Dr. Jim Richards who's an expert on bad religion and got him to help me, um, you know, finish that song. Mm. So, yeah, gosh, you know, there's so much of that. There is out there. There is. <laughs> yeah. There's the, the misrepresentation uh. of the character and nature of God by his followers is, uh, something that yeah. is, it's just really sad. Yeah. You know, I have a friend one time came to me and um, he was uh, about half spiritual. So, you know, sometimes he was, sometimes he wasn't. Mm -hmm. but he came to me one time and he said, he had real deep, deep Southern draw. He goes, well, I love Jesus and I love Elvis, but I just can't stand their fans. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's great. But that's where that song came from uh. was out of that. And uh, <laughs> and kind of my disdain for uh, some TV preachers and different things that, uh, yeah. you know, I've seen where people are very harsh because, you know, what 
what really draws us to the Lord is his love for us. Right. And he is, uh, you know, one of the most radical things that Jesus ever did was to present God as father. Mm -hmm. And that hadn't happened up to that point, and he was considered to be blasphemous for that. But it really describes for us the nature of God and how his relation, how he wants this relationship mm. with us as a father. Mm-hmm. And when I start to relate to, to that at, from my own experience, which is limited with my children, then it makes it clear that I can see that my harshness, my anger, my bad religion uh, didn't do anything but drive people away mm-hmm. instead of draw people close. Right. Wow. That's a good lead in but uh, to, to Jessica's story. But I, I, I got to talk about this really quick with you. Your newest album, I'm Hungry. Right. And I, you know, you gave this to me on CD and I, I don't even have a CD I don't player either. that works yeah, anymore. Have, it's, but, it's a business but, card. You look it up right. on Spotify. But no, I, I was like, because I like seeing who's playing and, you know, where you recorded. Is Covenant Studio, is that, uh, is that Mr. Waggy's it place? Is. Okay. Yeah. That's yeah. what I was thinking. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah. So I get to listen to this thing and it's all about food. Right. And I'm, I'm starting to think like you're using food as a metaphor for it seems like a lot of different things in my mind i'm thinking wow this is a metaphor for sex this is a metaphor for spirituality this is a metaphor for you know you name it and uh tell us tell us are you a foodie what what got you into this thing i'm a i love cooking i'm hungry folks you got to check this out i love cooking (laughs) and through the years i have written a few songs about food and uh, so I, it started with a song called green bananas which is there's a remix of that this, yeah. on the album and then i wrote a song well i recorded a song also on that same album called grits and groceries which is an old blue standard uh that was written by titus turner and made famous by a guy named little milton and um and then on secret my secretly famous album i wrote a song called baloney sandwich man and it's a it's really kind of a protest song to everybody that's eating healthy. You know how snobby people get when they eat healthy, you know, and and really what they really actually want is a bologna sandwich, you know. But <laughs> but uh and I threatened because of that, I, I kept saying to people, it's like I'm going to do a, a whole album of songs about food. And then somebody came to me, I think it was one of my kids came to me and said, you know, as much as you cook we should just write a cookbook. And so we started asking our friends and family to participate. Right. And so So my son, Jason is a chef (laughs) and um, another chef in there, local chef, Yoshi Kipper, who's the head chef at Liberty hospital contributed, but there's keto, paleo, Southwestern, Southern, uh, some depression era recipes in there. And, uh, and Sherry's fried chicken. <laughs> so it's a 196 page cookbook. So it's a serious uh, piece of work, but uh, that's great. What's your, your website is Jimmy Bratcher.com. Yeah. G I M M I E. Yeah. B R A T. Actually the easiest one is the rev com. The rev Yeah. We released the album on April 23rd and internationally. And to date it's been, uh, 19 weeks in the top 50 contemporary blues albums in the world based on radio play. It spent seven weeks in the top 10 and went all the way to number three. Wow. Congratulations. Yeah. Everybody says, well, what does that mean? It's like, I don't know. You know, (laughs) somebody said it's bragging rights. That's it. You know, so. So what's a bacon? What's bacon a metaphor for? A bacon. Bacon. Yeah. Nothing else. Nothing else. You know, I. Plano, you know, I know it's, you know, some spiritual people might have issues with me singing about bacon, but I'm thinking it's sex, you know, like Song of Solomon, but bacon. Instead. <laughs> bacon no, that, the sex song would be Baby, I Like What You're Cooking. Baby, I Like What You're Cooking. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, but there's a bunch of, of uh, lyric videos out there on YouTube from the album. Okay. And, uh, and some other things. Yeah. But one of the songs is Where Are You Gonna Stop, which is my um, directory to 
18 Kansas City barbecue restaurants. Ah. So all of which that I have eaten at. Yeah. But it's like, you know, you listen to the song and then it gives you kind of a roadmap if you're going to visit Kansas City where you can go get some good barbecue. Right. Yeah. So what's your favorite barbecue? Everybody asks that. It's well, so hard. I, Just uh, pick three. I can pick three. Yeah. So I love it. I love Elsie's. <laughs> yeah. Been there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I love Elsie's. I didn't see that one coming. Yeah. Elsie's is my favorite. Um, oh, see, I, when I moved up to the Northland in 72, that was a hamburger place. There's, it still is. Yeah. Really good hamburger yeah. place. Yeah. I mean, that's like my number two hamburger place. Yeah. But yeah, LC's, which is over off of um, Old 50 Highway at Eastwood, near Eastwood traffic. Yeah. Way. And it has a little uh, landing when you first walk in the door and a few stairs. And if they don't have a rug out on the floor, you have to hold yourself because it's so greasy. You're going <laughs> to you're going to slide. But I love LC's. And um, we always spring, you know, whenever we have guests come in from out of town or international, we always take them to Arthur Bryant's yeah, because of the history. You bet. You know, and all that stuff. And then I'd probably say my next one would maybe, I mean, we just ate there recently, would be Jack Stack. Mm. on the plaza okay yeah but, I, but i also like scott's kitchen have you been up here no i have not i've heard of uh, i've had several actually i did a catering with him one time and it was excellent yeah up there near the airport right right mm -hmm. yeah yeah up off ambassador yeah yeah they're only open for lunch but yeah i catered with him once that was really good yeah. um yeah you know i you know, KC Joe's now instead of Oklahoma Joe's. Right. Yeah, I wouldn't Certainly. go there until they changed the name. Right. <laughs> well, I did, and I loved it. But uh, I remember going to, to Jack Stack when it was, you know, in Martin City. Yeah, and, right. That's and that was I their only location. Yeah. It, yeah. And I used to go down there with my father-in-law, and, and he had built Jack Fiorella's home way back. Uh, and so my father-in-law was a favaza and so anyway he'd built the fiorella home there anyway good stuff well let's talk about your daughter jessica um and i how do you what's the best way to introduce this story because a lot of people that are going to be listening don't know any anything about it well uh, so this is by the way I, this is a powerful for me it's super powerful story and i love it so you introduce us help us help people get a hold of what well in going on. Um, 1971 i was as i mentioned a selfish out of control 17 year old and uh, i was uh, dating a girl dating would be a kind of an overstatement but uh and one night she came to me and told me that she was pregnant and to which i didn't believe her and so that was the end of the conversation uh, she didn't ever contact me after that, and um, and I heard that she had had a baby, and that was the end of that. And so in 76, Sherry and I remarried and came to faith in Jesus, and then in the mid-80s, I was in Liberty at my hometown in a restaurant, and I see this girl that I had dated's dad and these two little kids come in and um so that would have been made her about 13 or 14 and i see them across the restaurant they don't know that i'm there but i look at this little girl and i'm like this is my daughter and um sherry had asked when we were when we were in our first marriage uh, she asked me one night she said now you're not gonna have some kids showing up or something and i said well maybe <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know that was my answer was maybe so i saw her that day and knew immediately that she was my daughter and uh, i called just she, how she just, just the way she looked just and, her yeah, yeah yeah and uh so i called sherry and told her and we began to ask the lord what we should do and what we got was what year was this this would have been in the mid 80s oh 80s okay gosh. and so we uh, 13 yeah uh, the answer that we received was nothing 
And uh, so we went with that. So fast forward to 2009, uh, on Father's Day, I'm speaking in uh, St. Louis at St. Louis Family Church, Jeff Perry's church, big church. I got the band there. I'm telling our story and just a phenomenal thing. There's like five or 6,000 people in attendance and there's this girl in the audience on Father's Day. We don't know her, she doesn't know us, but she's so impressed that she begins to communicate to her big sister. And when she gets out of church, she calls her on the phone and she's telling her all about this incredible preacher, musician, the music, the story. And her big sister says, well, tell me this guy's name and I'll look him up on Father's Day. And she tells him, she tells her sister, you know, his name's Jimmy Bratcher. She hears the phone drop and her big sister picks it up and asks her little sister and says, well, do you know who this man is to me? And she says, no. And her big sister says, well, he's my dad. And she had asked her mother when she was eight years old who her daddy was. And her mother told her that his name was Jimmy Bratcher, that he had long curly hair, and he played guitar. And so... Those were the three things that she knew about right. her dad. Yeah. And so uh, her little... So si- Jennifer is the sister. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. little sister Jennifer. Right. Here's you speaking at a church in 2009 on Father's Day. Right. Calls her sister just to talk about you. Yeah. It's crazy. So... Uh, <laughs> Her little, you know, Jennifer asked Jessica, she said, well, what are you going to do about this? And she goes, I'm not going to do anything about it. You know, he wasn't ever here for me, so why should I even care anything about him? But for the next year and a half, unknown to anybody, Jennifer would go to their mother and ask her to contact me. So a year and a half later, on February 13th, 2011, I'm speaking in Christiana, Pennsylvania, I am preparing to speak for the ninth time that weekend. It's the last service. I'm in the green room drinking a cup of coffee, and I hear this voice in my heart. And the voice says, I'm about to change your life. And so I begin to dream about what that change could be, you know. And we're always like this big when God's got something much bigger in mind. And I do the last service. We get in the car to head to Philadelphia to fly home. And uh, I get an email from Jessica's mother. The first time I've heard from her since 1971. And the email says, it's overdue that you should meet your daughter and your grandsons. Her name's Jessica. And she doesn't know about you yet. But obviously Jessica did. And her mother said, you can find her on Facebook. So I responded to her mother and said, when and where? And and then went on Facebook and sent Jessica a friend's request. And when she got that request, she panicked because she didn't know what, what it meant or why I was all of a sudden there. And uh, so she went into this you know, month-long panic of freaking out, you know, just totally not knowing what to do or why. And I went into this um, really deep grief because it all of a sudden hit me the weight of my actions that I had abandoned one of my children and walked away from them. And I just could not believe that that was possible. But I had done that. And, you know, the Bible tells us sometimes there are things that happen to us that we don't have words for. And it says that our prayers are just groans. And through that time, all I could do is groan. And I'd wake up in the morning and I would think about her and just say, my prayer was three words. Oh, God, Jessica. And so for three weeks, she was uh, silent. And on uh, December 8th, or not, I'm sorry, on March 8th, 2011, I was in Daytona doing concerts at Bike Week with a band. And uh, we just finished. And I get an email from Jessica 
and uh, her email says, uh, you know, I dealt with my emotions concerning you a long time ago, and I put them all in a little box in my heart and wrapped them up with a, a big ribbon and knew that you would never be there to watch me dance, to see me graduate, or to walk me down the aisle at my wedding. And now that you're here, it's hard. It's not unwanted or unwelcome. And then she concluded her message by saying, the little girl in me wants to run to you with my arms open. But the woman in me wants to know where you've been and why now? She said, and then she closed her email by saying, thanks for showing up. And when I read those words, I knew to me, that was God speaking to me when she said, thanks for showing up. Because when Sherry and I describe what we do, that's the phrase that we use. We tell people when they say, well, well tell me what you do. And I'll say, we have the ministry of showing up. And so I took the next five hours to draft an email to her. It's the most difficult email I've ever written. And I took full responsibility for my actions. I asked her to forgive me. Um, I answered all the questions that I knew how that I could. And when I got ready to conclude my email, I referenced this little girl that she had mentioned was ready to run into my arms. And I just simply said, Jessica, I hope the little girl wins. And so from that, we started a flurry of activity via text and emails, no conversations, no phone calls. And uh, through that week of March 8th, and about Thursday of that week, I just said, you know, she lives in outside of Washington, D.C. And I said, I told her, I said, we're on the East Coast. And if you would like to meet us, uh, just say the word and tell me when and where and we'll be there. And so as the week progressed and as we communicated, she said, OK, Monday, the 14th, uh, Leroy, her husband's working in Charlottesville, Virginia, which is a couple hours south of their home. She said, I will we'll meet you there for dinner on that evening. And so we pulled into the parking lot and I'd never heard her voice. Uh, I'd never seen her face. And we pull into the parking lot and there her and Leroy are standing by one of the largest pickup trucks I've ever seen in my life. And I have to tell you a little bit <clears throat> about Leroy. His last name is Strong. First Sergeant retired Marine Corps drill instructor of the year. <laughs> Leroy Strong. Full metal jacket. No. Yeah. And I, so I know, I'm assuming he's packing, right? You know, I mean, but uh, so we get out of our van and uh, Sherry and I walk up to him and I was determined that I was not going to speak until she spoke. And I tell people that I don't use words like hi or hello and a greeting because I'm too cool for that. You know, I'll do something like, <coughs> excuse me, I'll do something like, hey. <laughs> and so we walk up and stand in front of her, and it's just like I'm looking in a mirror. And it's, you know, just amazing. And I'm waiting for her first words, and she looks at me, and she cocks her head and goes, hey. Hey. I'm a hugger. And she throws her arms around me. And we stand there for a long time and just weep. And we go into the, finally, Sherry breaks us up and we go into the restaurant and we sit down. It was the loudest restaurant in Charlottesville, Virginia, I'm convinced. And I asked her, I said, you know, or I tell her, Sherry actually said, look, we don't, we don't want anything from you. We don't need anything from you. We're just glad that you've taken this opportunity to meet us and let us into your life. And and I told Jessica, I said, look, I'm, I'm not demanding anything from you, 
but I would like to ask this one thing and whenever you're ready, if you would grant it, that would be great. And I would like to ask you to forgive me. And she reached across the table and grabbed me by the heart and said, well, but you're here now. We can't change the past. So we're cool. And when she tells the story, she talks about waiting for us to arrive at the restaurant. And she says, you know, I wanted justice. I wanted anger. I wanted bitterness. I wanted to spew abandonment and rejection and all these things that I've been through in my life onto you. But she said, I went and looked in my heart. And uh, God, God spoke to her in that moment and said, you can't have those, but you can have your dad. And so, you know, we began the relationship. We talked until the wee hours of the morning, the four of us. And the next morning we were scheduled to leave and she was scheduled to go back to work. And Sherry, when we get up in the morning, she insists, she says, we can't leave. We have to wait. And uh, it can't be just one and done. We have to stay. And I said, fine. So we, we were just waiting just a few minutes. Jessica calls and says, can we do lunch? And so we go to lunch with her and Leroy. And while we're talking, uh, I said, well, I'd like to meet the boys sometime. Because they have four boys between them. And Leroy, who's super security conscious, Marine introvert, right. you know, would, would have a fence around everything that he owns kind of thing. He goes, well, why don't you just follow Jessica home and meet the boys? And so my first uh, view of my oldest biological grandson was at 15 years of age, standing on stage in church playing guitar. Wow. And... Uh, we went back to the East Coast. I'm going to need a Kleenex yeah. or something. Uh, or some toilet paper or some paper <laughs> towels or an old hanky. But we went back uh, to, to her house on uh, Easter Sunday, 2011, was our first church service together. And out on the, the East Coast. Out right? on the East Coast. And um, we, as we were getting ready for church, I was drinking coffee, and she came down, and she had a gift for me. And it was a, a coffee mug with daddy names all over it, full of her favorite candy bar, uh, zero candy bars, which she had no way of knowing is my favorite candy bar. And uh, we're talking, and she puts her hands up on my face, and she looks me in the eyes, and she says these words. She says, Daddy, it's just like you were always here. And that really describes our relationship uh, from then till now, 10 years later. Mm. It's like there was never a void. It's not something we go back and revisit. Uh, in fact, I tried to, uh, and my kids and her especially wouldn't let me, I tried to, to hang on to regret. And um, and my, my son, Jason, actually confronted me with it. And uh, he, he asked me a question. He said, you've got guilt and shame over this don't you and i said no i know what those destructive emotions are like and i'm not going to hang on to those but you just have to give me regret and they attacked me like a pack of coyotes you know and jessica finally says listen i'm not going to live my life that way mm. and i don't expect you to live your life that way right. either wow yeah we don't we don't usually need Kleenex on these uh, <laughs> podcast interviews. Oh, well. My goodness. So, uh, so that's that uh, story. So we've writ written a book together. Yes. And I wanted people to – it's an awesome book. I, I literally finished reading it this morning. I was crying this morning. <laughs> yeah. Um, the Little Girl Wins. Um. So uh. the book includes um, 
a little history on me, her story. Yeah. And then when you get to chapter 10, um, I had trouble writing. I just, and I've written several books, so it's not like mm. I'm, this is the first thing I've ever done. And as I, you know, I get all my good inspiration in the shower. And uh, so I just felt like I would start with the email from her mother and uh, put that in there as yeah. the beginning of chapter 10. And then I discovered I was still having problems writing. So I, I went ahead and just put all of the communications yes. that, that her and I had had, that I'd had with my kids, that Sherry had had, uh, all of the communications that we had after, up to that point where we first met. Right. So the words that we used uh, to reconcile with each other mm. are all right in there yeah these emails are um yeah literally from that march 8 march 9 march 10 march 11 all the way up to you meeting her right and uh whew, it's very moving so uh, i it's definitely uh it's raw yeah and it's all out there right it's, it's all the honest uh, mistakes and the ugliness of uh, our dysfunction, my dysfunction as a parent. You know, I, the, one of the beautiful things, and you know, you kind of wrap it up there at the end of the book about forgiveness and you know, life's too short to carry resentments, mm -hmm. kind of thing. And uh, I think that uh, I think one of the beautiful things about this is the way that you know, Sherry, your wife. Jason and Amanda, what, Amanda, your your son and daughter, right? All received Jessica, you know. Received, right? You know, their sister, right? They received their her kids, so their their nephews and you know, nieces. The way Leroy received you and Sherry was beautiful. Um, I, I just, uh, I just thought, gosh. It, it was such a it, it's such a beautiful way that each person in the story responded not just you and jessica but the all of your extended family around them and even like your brother and sister or your was it My your sisters. sister yeah, yeah your sisters were mm -hmm. started yeah texting her or emailing her or whatever right well, away one and, of the discoveries um, that we made was that uh jessica had this friend grown up and uh and she had been to her house and spent the night when they were kids. And and in their teen years, this friend comes to Jessica and says, what would you do if you ever met your dad? And Jessica's response was, I'd punch him in the mouth. <laughs> well, Memorial Weekend 2011, they all, the whole family came to our house. And then we took her and everybody to meet my sister yeah. Linda who's since passed away and uh, Linda's daughter my niece Nikki was that girl mm. Jessica had been to my sister's house mm. as an adolescent and spent the night wow and uh, you know one of the things that happened with Sherry you know, Sherry said uh, her first response, Jessica wanted to know, and her first email was, does your wife know about me? Do your kids know about me? Mm -hmm. And Sherry's response to that was, you tell her that, our, that my heart in our home is open to her. And while we were on the trip to meet uh, her for the first time, Sherry said something. She looked at me and she said, Jimmy, you know, we have a great life. We have a great marriage. We have a great family. But something has always been missing. And Jessica and Leroy and the boys are it. And my daughter, Amanda, who is my assistant, we we didn't want to tell the kids until 
we were face to face, but because she had access to my email, we decided that we would call. And Amanda says this, she says, you know, we have a great family, but something's always been missing. This is it. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, we had tried, Sherry and I had tried to raise our children in such a way that their responsibility as a family was never just about us. Mm. It was about us and others. And so their hearts were very much prepared for this moment mm. by what we had modeled for them their whole life. And uh, But it is a miracle to see that everybody was a hundred percent right and uh, it's beautiful and nobody had any uh, reservations about you know i mean you think about the changes so my firstborn's not my firstborn jason's not my firstborn he's the middle child yeah. <laughs> and he quickly adopted that syndrome you know middle <laughs> child syndrome and uh, uh. <laughs> you know my my niece nikki my dad always called her number one number one mm -hmm. And she was no longer in that status anymore because she wasn't the oldest. And uh, so the whole balance of our family was completely remodeled. My biggest fear in this was, uh, where am I going to come up with money for Christmas presents? <laughs> you know, four kids added to the family. Uh, but, but it's been a beautiful journey to watch as... Uh, and and we purposely I put off uh, writing the book because I wanted it not to be a ministry deal. It was more important for me that we establish ourselves as a family mm. rather than just have another story to tell that we can go out and share in public and make a church service out of it. Right. I mean, I think that that's important, and you know, as we've told the story. Uh, it's amazing to me how many people have similar stories. Hmm. They'll come to us and say, well, I'm Sherry or I'm Jessica or I'm Jessica's mother. Or, you know, I've, we were in West Virginia one of the first times, first time we were ever together for Father's Day, and we told a story in a church in Martinsburg. <clears throat> and uh, the first guy to come out to the table after the service was this, hardened west virginia farmer you know early 70s dressed in overalls calloused hands you know the whole thing and and he's literally shaking and he comes up to me and he says you know i haven't talked to my kids in 25 years mm. and it's my fault and i'm gonna try to mm. reconcile that the wow. next person that comes out is a 21 year old or he was going to be 21 the next day and he comes up to me and he says, I text my mom in the service and told her what I wanted for my birthday. And I said, really, what's that? He goes, I want to meet my dad. I've never met him. Hmm. And so we hear story after story after story of people that have this same disconnect. And our, our reason for really telling the story is to encourage those people to do something what we don't know you know for sure pray and ask god if there's something that you need to do uh, or you know maybe you need to actually make a call or ask for forgiveness or do the research or do whatever mm -hmm. and um it's been amazing you know the last uh book in the old testament in the book of malachi in the last chapter right at the end of the chapter says that a sign of the end times would be that the hearts of the fathers right. would be towards their sons, children, and the hearts of the sons would be towards their fathers. Mm -hmm. And uh, in our little microcosm of our world, that's what this is all about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Man, thank you for sharing. That's so beautiful. Sure. So, um, yeah, I don't know if you can shift into uh, – uh, music mode i'd love to have you do a song there there was a song in the book that that you had written right for was it called new day or it's something a new day it's a new day uh, is that one can possible you do, 
can you maybe do? <laughs> I'd, have to, I'd have to maybe uh, run through it once just curious because you sent that to jessica is that i right? did yeah or, i wrote that song prior to knowing that any of this was going on okay and i thought it was very unusual because and in fact i almost didn't record it because it was so odd to me hmm. because it it you know as a preacher you know we're talking about forgiveness but this song was not about it was about it was only about the hope of being forgiven mm. but it wasn't about forgiveness interesting and when that when this event started to unfold i knew that that was the holy spirit preparing my heart to be able to say yes to this uh and to accept the fact that i needed to be forgiven all right that's good all right well let's let's shift to the music okay all right well jimmy thank you for being with us on the podcast thank and you. sharing your story so so beautiful and uh man i that's the first podcast i've done where i needed uh, kleenex so crazy good 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 well thanks for uh you're gonna close us out with a song yeah uh, oh how i love jesus yeah the, this is an old hymn of the church so jimmy bratcher version yeah <laughs> There is a name I love to hear I love to sing its words Sounds like music to my ears The sweetest name on earth Tells me of a Savior's love who died to set me free. It tells me of His cleansing blood, the sinner's perfect plea. It's my trembling heart rejoice It dries each rising tear It tells me in a still small voice To trust and never fear Jesus the name I love so well, the name I love to hear. No saint on earth its word could tell, no heart conceive how dear. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus because he first loved me. Jesus, 
because he first loved me because he first loved me Awesome. All right. Well, we'll see you next time, everybody. Thanks for joining in at Spirituality Adventures. This concludes today's episode. Thanks for tuning in and listening. Remember, if you're watching on YouTube, subscribe to my YouTube channel. Remember to like, share, or subscribe to the social media platform that you're using. And then Go to our website, spiritualityadventures.com and make a one-time donation or you can subscribe monthly and receive our special bonus content. Thanks so much.